Food and Beverage Magazine Live, bringing food and beverage to life with your hosts, James Beard Award winner Jennifer English and Food and Beverage Magazine publisher Michael Politz. Featuring leaders in the hospitality, branded food and beverage, and CPG industries, many of whom are Jennifer and Michael's friends in the business. For an informal and informative conversation where friends in the business share the latest intel, ideas, and best practices. Live, juicy inside scoop from the tastemakers, newsmakers, bread bakers, drink shakers, spoon lickers, clam diggers, farms, foodies, and friends of the food and beverage magazine world. Here are your hosts, Jennifer English and Michael Politz. Wow. Hey, babe. Oh, I can't get over that. Nice job. Can you, can you get over that? Yeah, you did a great job, but it, it really speaks not to us as much as it speaks to the space that we're holding for the extraordinary men and women in our industry, our friends in the business this food community, this national industry that really is like one big family. That's true. And that's uh, that's exciting. That's what we're all about. Listen, there is so much going on. Each and every day, we invite the most interesting and influential people in our world, our friends in the business, in all aspects of the hospitality business, restaurant operators and you know consumer brands and and people who are really in a position in this industry to help influence where we go next. But they're all in this together, just like we are, figuring out what we can do right now to not only get through this moment in time, but to help be the leaders in this industry, solving the problems for all of us about not only where we go, but what we do when we get there. There's a lot of conversation taking place literally on an on a day-by-day, but even hour-by-hour hour basis that is fundamentally changing the way that the food and, and hospitality industries, not just in the United States, but literally around the world, are happening. And there are regulations, state-by-state state are changing and shifting. Why is it, with the best minds in the country working on this problem, can't we agree between the rules to open up in Massachusetts and, and Montana? or Arizona and Alabama? Why should there be something other than best known best practices uh, impacting and influencing the way we're all going to open up and operate, welcome guests? And there are some really troubling fundamental ideas about how this is all happening when sweeping kinds of regulations and rules are taking place and being imposed, instituted, like you can only have 50% of your seats. Well, if you take 50% of my top line revenue, gross revenue off the table, that doesn't mean you cut my profit in half. It might mean that you wipe my profit away altogether. But it also means that you need to make sure that that's the case across the board. And it doesn't really impact every restaurant the same way. Fast food operators are just not being impacted squarely the same way. If you're telling a sit-down restaurant that they have to have some reservation process. Well, nobody makes a reservation to go to McDonald's or, or Five Guys. So how come they don't have it and it's a safety issue and you might sit down at the Five Guys and have it? I don't know. There's just too many inconsistencies. And so literally trying to wrap your understanding around what's going on isn't easy. In fact, it's really hard. 
But one of the things we do know is that it is impacting our industry squarely and almost improbably unfairly in a sense, because one out of every four of the newly unemployed people in the country is in the hospitality industry. And there's lots of statistics like that. There's also families. I got to say, there's also more families uh, that are going hungry. People who relied on this industry uh, for their livelihood. And, and there, there are miracles happening all over the country and including in Las Vegas uh, of organizations stepping up to not only feed the first responders and hospital workers, but to also feed the hunger. We're going to get into all that today. Right. And I think we look at this as restaurants because that's what we do right. and, and hospitality, but this goes way deeper. Like, look, I mean, there are probably catering companies, catering halls. There's, you know, we know about the, the venues and the music and the people can't congregate and all that, but you know, at, at the center of it all, there's food service, right. even at these ball games, right. They're suffering. Um, and they can't open unless there's a ball game. So what? Where's their? And some of these people, this is their this is their livelihood. Let's take this one step further. When you're talking about restaurants, you're also talking every restaurant has an accounting firm. Every restaurant has a law firm that handles things for it. Every single restaurant tour is going to have suppliers, uh, and those suppliers are going to have suppliers. The the ripples that this industry impacts in our culture and and, and country, it's it's nearly, you got to say, it touches everybody's life. There are very few things that touch everybody. Uh, this is one of those things that touches everybody. In order, it, to, Here's a question. Does it determine if you're going to sink, fail or succeed, what kind of operator you are or have been? Do, is that the determination? Or can someone that wasn't really a hands-on active operator get involved and save himself? Right? I don't, I don't I don't even I don't even think that's the question to be asking. And sometimes getting to the right answer means asking the right question. And when the world of hospitality wants to know where to go next and what is the right question to ask, there are a few people who have historically been so influential and innovative in this industry that they are at that wisdom point where we turn in a moment like this to say, "Can you help us figure this out?" Of all the shows that we've done and of all the guests that we've talked to, I have never been more honored and proud to welcome to the show um, not only a friend, uh, but one of the most influential women in the culinary world. Not only is she a James Beard Award nominee, uh, not only is she on the boards of the most prestigious Swiss Hotel School and the Culinary Institute of America, a graduate of the Cornell University Hotel Program, but she is certainly one of the people that the world widely recognizes in her role as innovator for her really forward thinking and prescient notion to turn Las Vegas from the buffet town it was to the gourmet town it is. So it only stands to reason that the, the world would look to her in this moment in time and say, what is our next rebirth going to take us into what it, what might it look like? And most importantly, what are some of the questions that are the right questions to be asking? Because I think all of us that watched the White House briefing yesterday and the meeting with the restaurateurs and seeing people we know from our industry, like Tim Love and 
and Thomas Keller, that we have to ask the question, did they even ask the right question? Because if you don't ask the right question, you can't get to the right answer. We are thrilled and honored to welcome Elizabeth Blau, president and co-founder of Blau & Associates, co-owner of Honey Salt in both Las Vegas and Vancouver, and the author of the Honey Salt Cookbook, among other things. And she is with us today. We welcome her to our table. Hi, Elizabeth. How are you? Hi. Virtual hugs. <laughs> Thank you for that um, beautiful um, introduction. Uh, no pressure. <laughs> You know, Elizabeth, one of the really key things that I've seen you do in meetings with your clients, uh, I've been privileged to uh, work with you historically. I know Michael has as well. And one of the most impressive things you can do uh, is really clarify a moment and crystallize the question. I think you're able to distill a lot of ideas down into the good questions or the right questions to ask. That's what makes you one of the leading and most sought after hospitality industry consultants in the world. How would you treat this moment in time like the consultant you are to come up with that right question? Did we ask as an industry the right questions yesterday in that room in Washington? Well, um, first of all, there's a lot of pressure. Um, that uh, is a is a tough audience to be in. They certainly have pulled out all the... Uh, all the top guns um, in there, and and I'm not sure it was a it was a time for questions. I think it was a time for um, bringing up the severity of the issue, and and I think Will Gadara, you know, certainly told a, a wonderful story in terms of you know how impactful are 11 million employees, and I thought whoever made the point that. Our industry is so welcoming. It's not about your education or your ethnic background or your your religion. It's your willingness and dedication um, to the art of, of hospitality, whether you're in culinary or or in in on the service side and in, in the front of the house. And so, while there was a lot of focus yesterday on on the PPP and um, making that a workable program because, you know, some of our colleagues, as you know, Jennifer, still haven't even, you know, had the opportunity to, to reopen. I mean, New Yorkers, um, they don't even have any idea. I mean, some people are even talking about fall, which is obviously completely devastating. Um, but for me, the PPP is, is an issue um, for, for the past because, you know, we've remained open with, with honey salt. And so maybe that's, you know, April and, and May, but um, the bigger question is what does the stimulus package look like? What does aid from the government uh, look like for us uh, moving forward? Because as you um, discussed with Michael, um, this is um, not going to be something that um, is going to um, be able to be, um... Jennifer, are you still there? Yeah, no, we're right here. Can you see us? Um, I lost you for a second. Do you know how to get this back? <laughs> oh, we can see you. You sound great and you see, we can see you. Somebody, just... somebody called in and bumped me off the, uh, the screen. Well, keep going, because you look and sound great. We can see you just fine. Michael, I want to... Um, make a couple of points here about what, what Elizabeth's saying. Um, in yesterday's conversation, the world was given a, 
a, a glimpse at how important the hospitality industry is. And I think in some respects they were almost underreporting the scope of the impact. Right. Uh, and I think in the eagerness of the fast food operators that were in the room to get the company, the country up and running again, their companies were positioned in a sort of monolithic way that the hospitality industry is a monolith and it's not. And one size doesn't fit all. And even though there may be between 11 and 15 million employees in the United States who are engaged in the hospitality industry, some have been much more severely directly impacted by this uh, than others. Um, not everybody has had to debate, should I open or should I not open? Uh, and certainly fast food restaurants with existing um, drive-through options, hands-free options, um, have had maybe a bit of an easier time of it because they already had the mechanism to live this no-touch um, model that seems to be adopted more and more. Elizabeth, I wanted to talk, when Michael and I have been experiencing this, we've kind of come up with this idea that we're in a really high-touch industry in a no-touch time. How have you been looking at what this pandemic and this crisis have meant to you as a restaurateur? Well, I mean, we've had to constantly reinvent ourselves from the beginning. I mean, we turned Honey Salt into um, a marketplace. We sold everything from beautiful Casa Dragones uh, margarita cocktails to family style meals uh, to toilet paper and flour because those were commodities that um, weren't available. We, um, you know, have have completely reinvented um, pretty much, you know, how we look at the business and then we've had to do it again. I mean, never did I think that uh, in a reopening, I was going to have to talk about, you know, temperature and wellness checks and emergency um, uh, days off for, for people who, um, you know, either feel sick or have family members, my cleaning and sanitary processes. I mean, these are things that you never thought would be necessary to, to share with your guests, but, uh, people want that reassurance. They want security. They want to know what it is you're, you're doing to, to be sure that they, you know, they can return, safely. So, you know, we are working um, on contactless payment. We're looking on um, a company that will provide QSR codes so that you can uh, order right from your phone. Uh, right now we're using disposable um, paper so that we throw away the menus. But, you know, the idea is not to continue to fill landfills. Um, you know, one of our premises, our pillars at, at Honey Salt is, is to try and be as eco-friendly as, as possible. So, um, you know, just um, greeting our, our guests with a mask and, and, and gloves um, and just doing fun things. Like I, I, the last thing I wanted was for people to come into the restaurant and have to see empty bar stools and, um, you know, huge gapping holes in, in the dining room. And so we got volunteers from our staff and some of my neighbors, and um, we filled the bar and a, a table in the dining room with giant teddy bears because um, who's not going to make you smile except for a giant, you know, teddy bear? So um, I think it's our job. We're in the hospitality um, 
you know, arena, we're, we're nurturers, we're, um, we're entertainers, we're not just providing, you know, food and, and service. So um, I wanted to, you know, have an icebreaker and come in. Um, and so people are taking pictures with our bears, they have a sign that says, please don't touch the bears, they're in quarantine. Um, so just trying to do whatever we can to normalize um, what is an absolutely not normal time. And, and what a what a thoughtful, innovative way to address such an emotional topic and leave it to you to do something so innovative. It, it made the Today Show yesterday. I mean, it just kudos for that. But that's the kind of thing that we come to expect from you guys. You, you just seem to know the, where we are and, and what we want. Honey Salt, the cookbook, a culinary scrapbook. Again, you innovated the category. Um, as somebody who can see in an innovative kind of way, I know that this moment in time, while challenging, also presents us with opportunities. Um, what are some of the opportunities that the innovator in you sees this moment in time giving us? Well, I, I think first and foremost, it's a time to to reconnect. It's a time to decompress for a moment. I know um, I, for one, um, have not been out of an airport in such an extended period of time. And so, you know, just taking a moment to reconnect with old friends and um, making sure to check in with family members. I'm torturing Michael with my Instagram um, and cooking. I mean, you know, I don't know when I've had the time to, um, to cook and, and bake so much. So my Good friend Cynthia Moon has been my uh, my baking mentor because I haven't been um, uh, much of a sourdough starter person, but now I'm obsessed. And so you can see my apple fritters and my waffles. And tomorrow I will be debuting. Hopefully it works. My my croissant, but um, just balancing. Um, you know there is certainly a horrific economic situation that is impacting people that as a mother, as a restaurateur, um, is difficult for me to know that, um, you know, that food has become um, such a crisis in our, um, especially here in, in Las Vegas, but across the, the country, um, you know, somebody that has to spend a good portion of their day, you know, concepting new ideas um, that, you know, that food insecurity in this company, in this company, in this country, is um, at an all-time high. And so, um, you know, that is how we got together with um, our county commissioner, uh, Marilyn Fitzpatrick, and um, put in Mather from the Elaine Wynn Foundation, Julie Murray from the Moonridge um, Organization, and founded uh, Delivering with Dignity. And so our, our mission is to make sure that those most vulnerable in the community are provided with food. I've been the culinary um, chairwoman of the Culinary Council at Three Square. Our, our, our food bank is a model food bank in, in the country, but they've had to completely pivot with the closing of the schools to a grocery model. I think they have more than 30 remote locations where they're distributing food to, to families. And, and many of those um, kids were not only provided with um, subsidized or free lunch, but also breakfast. And so now you're talking about five days a week, um, you know, up to 10 meal periods where, you know, these families are facing even more 
food insecurity. So, you know, they're not operating their kitchen, which, you know, usually has a tremendous number of volunteers and everything is about small gatherings, not large gatherings, not large volunteers. And so for so many of the nonprofits that we've partnered with, what we're able to do with this army of volunteers that we call food heroes um, with the help of the United Way is to get this this food, the chef cooked food that's cooked with passion and, and sold the same you know type of food that we're, we're doing for our regular customers, getting to these families out in the in the community. And so the food heroes um, are bringing right to the doorstep. And all of this is made possible with um, the introduction um, to an incredible woman, um, Kamal Ahmed, and her company, um, Copia, um, which is a tech platform, which um, creates groups all over the city for these drivers um, and they have an app on their, on their phone. And so, you know, within an hour or two, they can, you know, get these um, food deliveries uh, which are, you know, three meals or, or two family style meals um, out to these families. So half of honey salt's been converted to a community kitchen um, of which we're incredibly proud Um because again, um, it's just unfathomable to me that I'm going to spend time dreaming up fried chicken and meatballs and and apple pies, um, and um, and then there's there's people that 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 have nothing and cannot leave their homes, don't have the financial means to use a delivery service, and don't have anyone else to bring them their food. So we we consider that a triple threat. And um, I think of all the things that we've been able to accomplish. Um, during this pandemic, that's what I'm most proud of. Elizabeth, during this period, uh, this crisis has seemed uh, to focus in a, a lens and a spotlight on the urgency of this because of the pandemic, of a hunger that may have existed and pre-existed this pandemic. Um, there's been a lot of talk about the fact that the pandemic and the subsequent necessity for quarantine and, and other shifts and changes in our behaviors, that somehow this has caused any situation that was suboptimal to, to be exposed and needs to be revealed. Uh, has it been your experience that that's true? Do you think that this has shown us that, that the scope of the need is both severe and urgent and maybe even predated this crisis in some ways? Well, I mean, you know, look, I, I think the the predating um, potentially, but um, when have we ever been in a situation where, you know, our elderly um, relatives and friends are just afraid to leave their, their home? I mean, usually right. they have access to their senior centers or other community centers where they might be provided food, our cancer patients, our, you know, immune compromised um, friends. So, you know, this is a different situation, um, you know, whereas, you know, they might be able to walk to a corner store or, you know, or go to a, a fast food restaurant, um, but they really are in fear for their lives of, of leaving home. And so, um, you know, most of the the food banks and and social service centers, you know, require you to to go somewhere. Even these these drop off um, places for for Three Square, you know, require you to get in a car and and, and leave your house. And so 
these circumstances are, you know, are so incredibly, um, you know, un unusual in this um, situation. So um, it's terrible and it's, it, our numbers are growing. The meals we've added, we're up to um, four restaurants. Um, the Lieutenant Governor um, asked us two weeks ago to help get this um, started in, in Reno and um, up in the Northern part of the state. Um, so they've been going for about two or three weeks now. So um, unfortunately the numbers just keep growing. Elizabeth, uh, there was a lot of talk yesterday about the PPP. I know that this is something that you and I have had the opportunity to talk about a little bit. Um, and, and it's not that the PPP doesn't do good things, um, but maybe it's insufficient. What do you think the conversation should be? What were you hoping we we should have thought about or considered in our converse, our national conversation yesterday? What do you urge us to consider in a conversation about this situation? Well, the PPP is is um, is a terrific you know uh, relief mechanism you know and designed for a, a certain period of time, and so. What we were contesting was that the eight weeks was not enough time, especially for you know our friends and colleagues who haven't reopened. So extending that time so that we can use the money to which it was intended for to help us and, and, and to help us stay afloat and for some of us to help reopen right. is wonderful. And, 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 it was, um, and it was a brilliant program. However, it's just a start in terms of what we need. Um, at 50% or 25%, which some of our colleagues around the country are, are experiencing, that is economic disaster. Um, you know, you said it before, um, that doesn't trickle down to 50% profit. That may be all of our profit. And so what this is going to look like is complete Armageddon for, for our industry. What we have to do now to protect and to, you know, to maintain that flattening of the curb is to do the social distancing, but it doesn't work economically for restaurants. I mean, do I tell my chef he's getting 50%? I mean, I certainly want to tell my landlord they're getting 50%, but what about my insurance and my taxes? And so there are so many things we need to look at. President Trump spoke yesterday about you know, reinstating um, business tax deductions. I mean, that would be huge for us. We have to talk about tip credits. We have to get landlords to work. I mean, there's terrible stories around the country of landlords and their behavior. And there's also hero stories of, of landlords. Um, you know, we work with Kite Realty and Brookfield, and they have been incredibly supportive in the, in the process. And I'm sure there's many others around the country. Um, and then there are some that, you know, are, are threatening, you know, foreclosures on, on small business people um, and government has had to, you know, to intervene. Um, you know, we have to talk about business interruption experience. We're working with John Hutalong, you know, a, an attorney out of New Orleans with Thomas Keller, who's filing a lawsuit. What have I been paying those those premiums for my insurance, for my business interruption tax for so many years, only to be told that um, the pandemic is not considered, uh, it's considered an exemption. Um, so what have I been paying these premiums for if, if it's not going to help um, during this, this period of time? So there's just a myriad of, of things that we need to look at in terms of, of subsidy. And, and, and possibly even additional stimulus and, and possibly 
um, extending, you know, the amount of, of, of money, um, not just the amount of, of time. So those are the questions that I would have liked to have, have seen posed. And that's what I would have liked to push having Steve Mnuchin, the president, the vice president, Ivanka Trump, Jared Kushner, and, and that esteemed audience is, um, I think we did a good job, but I think we need to, to, to push forward to understand the devastation that is going to befall this restaurant community, especially the independent restaurants um, around the country, these small business people who are working on incredibly narrow margins. And I think you said it before, it's also our farmers, our ranchers, our fishermen, the restaurant public relations firms. There's an entire army of millions and millions of people that directly derive their jobs, their income and revenue um, based on the health and the the humanity of, of of our restaurant industry. Can you talk a little bit about the reality of being an operator restaurateur today? I just don't think it was made clear yesterday how thin the margins are for your industry. Can you help us tell that story so that everyone is really on the same page about the direct impactfulness of this financial Armageddon? Well, when you look at industry averages, um, you know, people talk about five or six percent profit. I mean, that's a fraction of, of retail or or many other businesses. You know, we have heavy labor costs. Many of us have um, heavy costs on on insurance and, you know, and, and other benefits to to our employees. The price of uh, of our commodities, of our food just keeps, you know, growing. And you're hearing about all kinds of crises in the in the food chain, especially, you know, from the meat producer. So our prices are only skyrocketing up. And so, you know, we have tremendous fixed costs. We have, you know, growing variable costs. And, um, and, and so for, for many of us, you know, we are well beyond the, um, the 10% profitability margin. A simple restaurant like Honey Salt, that's a neighborhood restaurant and needs to price, you know, neighborhood. But, you know, we use packaging that's recyclable. We use sustainable fish. We use organic products when we can. We use local, we support local farmers when we can all those things cost more. And I'm happy to provide that because that's the DNA of, of what we want to do. But that just makes my margins thinner and thinner. And so if you take away half of my seats, my entire economic model is like a house of cards and it goes kaput. So right now, you know, we all go to work for one reason, and that is to provide jobs. That is to keep my employees and their families employed. We are not looking at profitability um, for a very long time. And, and my only goal is not to deplete our savings so that, you know, that we need to close our, our doors. And so we're, we're managing our, our costs on a, on a daily basis till we don't get to that point where we just simply have to, to fold our arms and, and close the doors. But every day, um, we are seeing restaurant carnage. We are seeing more and more. We're seeing national chains. Um, we're seeing local restaurants. We're seeing signs, you know, just sorry, we, we will not be reopening. And to me, that is absolutely devastating because I know the hard work, the effort, the heart and soul 
Um, people don't go into our business because they're going to make a lot of money. They go into their biz- this business because they're passionate about what they they do, and um, it's um, it's heartbreaking. Like yourself, restaurants in each community in which they operate are oftentimes the first line of philanthropy. If you have a fundraiser at your child's school, oftentimes you'll turn to your friends in the restaurant business that you will frequent, the pizza place, you know, the diner, wherever you go, and you'll turn to them and say, could I have a gift certificate for my auction, for my raffle, for my fundraiser? Talk a little bit about that sort of unspoken piece of the cultural fabric in a community that the restaurant and the local, the independent restaurant, because at yesterday's conference, we heard about the IRC and and that's an entire community of independent restaurants that have this kind of role in their communities. And not enough was said about that in, in my opinion. So the IRC is the independent restaurant coalition and it's made up of restaurateurs and, um, and chefs from, from around the, the country. And um, so it, only started seven weeks ago. And what's extraordinary is um, that that we were represented um, with the president and the vice president yesterday and um, that our voices are, are being heard at the, you know, the highest levels of, of, of government. Um, but you're absolutely right. I mean, there's not a Girl Scout or Boy Scout troop, not a, you know, an arts uh, group. There is no disease from, you know, cancer to the most um, breast cancer to um, Lou Gehrig's to Alzheimer's that, you know, that we don't, um, you know, support the hospice um, senior centers with gift cards or, you know, or donating dinners or, you know, live auction packages, um, a barbecue in your, your backyard. And so, uh, our charity partners and, you know, in our community are going to have to know that um, we are going to need your support. We are going to need your help. Um, we're going to need your support of the local community. So, again, that we can protect that whole army of, um, of the supply chain, the bakers, uh, the farmers that, um, that, that provide us. Otherwise, you're going to see um, complete economic breakdown. Can we talk a little bit about you and your work with your own group, Um, talking a little bit about Honey Salt? I was looking through um, my Honey Salt, and I I have one right here, and I love this book. Um, And as our friend in the business, I was wondering if you could share maybe a couple of recipes that lend themselves to this moment in time. Um, those kinds of things that might let us go into our pantries like that fantastic power salad and and create something. You know, we're all cooking, but it's almost as if the honey salt culinary scrapbook um, gave us a, a, a roadmap to how to get through this in some ways because it takes us not only on your family's journeys on your vacations, but it takes us through different moments in time, many of which can bring some much needed connection and and not only delicious food but the notion of you know tapping into your pantry and using what you have and sharing what you have um and the spirit of honey salt really is a a a thing that can be really useful right now would you talk a little bit about the culinary scrapbook the honey salt culinary scrapbook sure 
So um, one of the, the fun things that we've been doing is um, Jolene Menina, who's um, my co-founder of the Women's Hospitality Initiative um, and another very innovative person in our community. And she has um, a platform called Secret Burger. And so we've been working with her and we have been doing uh, home cooking kits. And so last weekend, Kim and I did a whole series from the Honey Salt Cookbook. We did um, sangria and paella and I did my summer berry spoon cake. And so you pick up the kits from, from Honey Salt and part of the meal is prepared and then part of the meal you actually cook with us. And so it's pretty easy and seamless. And even if you don't enjoy cooking, um, it's, it's fun, but, um, you know, the cookbook is all about, um, you know, things that are just so near and dear to us. And so those are recipes that signal summer that sim single Cape Cod and, you know, kind of an escape from everything that is, you know, our, our reality right now. And so, um, the other day I, um, I did a demo with um, pancakes um, from the recipe. And, you know, I was mentioning that, um, you know, in a pandemic, maybe buttermilk is not, you know, something that you have, you know, just as a staple in your house. And so it's very easy to take regular milk and add vinegar, apple cider vinegar, lemon juice, um, and make your own buttermilk. And I, you know, to me, it's just natural. But, you know, so many people wrote in and said, oh, I hate buying a whole thing of buttermilk just to make you know, one batch of pancakes. And so um, I think it's got a lot of, of, of you know, healthy and um, also helpful tips um, in in the book. But um, it's it's kind of fun just to, you know, for us to, you know, to revisit um, the, the recipes. And we just did um, in celebration of our reopening on Friday at Honey Salt, we did a, a cookbook giveaway and we got over 500 people um, on Instagram and, and Facebook to, um, to tag us and tell us who they would like to bring in. And um, it just was a nice connection to the community and it was wonderful to see it well received. And I think that's what we're trying to do now, Jennifer, is just keep connected with the community. And, you know, just simple things that um, Mother's Day, um, Sven Mead and Todd Harrington, two of our corporate chefs, um, their daughters came in and um, and decorated the bags for Mother's Day. Um, they are an uh, elementary school and um, and just did, you know, happy, fun, you know, drawings. And, uh, you know, again, uh, just the simple touches um, now of, of things that um, that that make a human connection. I mean, so many of us are, you know, are in our homes. Um, some of us are alone. Some of the of us are with a few family members. But we're certainly all missing, um, you know, our extended family and friends. And you know, that's even you know more poignant. Um, we've had Passover. We've had Easter. We've had Mother's Day. And you know, now we'll roll into to Father's Day. And so. And Memorial Day weekend. And Memorial Day weekend. So, um, which we're going to do barbecue and uh, Casa Dragones watermelon margaritas, which I am ready to dip into right now. <laughs> All right, let, let's talk. And of course, you mentioned your husband, the extraordinary chef, Kim Cantinwala, who is your uh, partner in these enterprises. Um, and one of the things that's always remarkable to me about your partnership uh, is the joy and the fun that you have in the kitchen. And, and these secret burger shows have been really fun for those of us 
who love food and admire you both to get a glimpse of you in the kitchen and how much joy it brings you. Can you talk about the, the simple things that all of us seem to be looking for in our kitchens while we've been in quarantine or, or self-isolation, if, if you want to call whatever we call it. Can you talk a little bit for me uh, about the thing that we're looking for that may be hiding in plain sight? What is it that you find in your kitchen that you can maybe help us rediscover as we're in there looking for something? How can you help us focus in on what it is we're looking for? And how do we find it? Well, I also took this um, opportunity of spending so much time in my house to organize. So uh, I did my own Maria Kondo effort <laughs> of, uh, you know, of what made me feel good in my, my pantry. So um, I threw out a bunch of stuff. Some of it, I'm sure, was Kim's. And I don't know, he was planning to do something with it. But <laughs> in, in about three months, he'll be like, where is this? And I'll go, I have no idea. Um, but... You know, I, I think that, um, you know, you all think uh, a couple minutes extra about having to make a trip to the supermarket. So, you know, kind of just getting creative with what is in the pantry and, you know, and going through and and, and making things. And so, um, you know, I've made chocolate chip cookies with, you know, everything from oatmeal to flax seeds to chia seeds. Um Kim is doing a gluten-free diet now. So um, I've found uh, bags of coconut flour and um, and rice flour and things, you know, I didn't even realize I, I had in there. So, you know, now's a, a good time to, you know, to, to, to clean up your, your pantry and, you know, and again, make recipes that, um, that make you happy that, you know, of, of, of ideas and, and cookies make us all happy here in this, in this house. So <laughs> we've been, I don't know that coffee cake looking, it would make me happy. Oh my I can't even look at her. And I've caught, I don't even comment on Instagram. Elizabeth, I have to write yum. Every time I see something, every yeah. single time, it's like a bakery. Next time I make that coffee cake, I'm going to call you because that was oh. insane. You know, you remember when Carrie Simon and I tried to recreate all those hostess cupcakes? Well, Remember those little coffee cakes? You right. know, you could put them in the microwave for a minute. I mean, it tasted like that with that cinnamon crumbly. It was good. And let me just put this up so everybody knows who Kim. There's Kim and Elizabeth uh. <laughs> donning the cover of Food and Beverage magazine two years ago. Look at that. Did you ever see that, Jennifer? Yes. Gorgeous picture. Look at that. Gorgeous. Look at his. Let's not get into his hair. Gorgeous hair on that man. Okay, that's not what we're talking about. <laughs> I would be remiss if I didn't mention that um, that uh, our friend Carrie Simon, uh, who uh, was really pivotal in the food world in Las Vegas and Elizabeth um, and their and their longstanding friendship and, and collaboration. Um, uh, we've got to mention Carrie among among those people who maybe not here today but but that played such an important role in in our friendship and, and in our lives together in Las Vegas um, and we were talking a couple of days ago Elizabeth about how when we were doing the almost famous chef contest and, and Carrie and I would get paired off to, to go and taste together Could you guys um, help me uh, just tell a little bit of a story about Carrie 
Well, it's funny because he, he connects all of us. And um, in this uh, cleaning process of mine, um, I went through my garage storage and I um, found some old photographs um, of his that we had must have been in one of our restaurants. And so I was texting with his uh, brother, Scott Simon, uh, who was just opening a new restaurant in, in Atlanta. And, um, and so Scott and I were having a, a chuckle because Carrie, I mean, you know, this Michael would be going out of his skin, being told that he had to stay home and not see friends and, and not do not go to the gym. What about the not gym? Go to be able to go- gym, not go, you know, to sit, you know, for in the juice bar. So Scott and I had a had a chuckle that we were both thinking that the same thing that um, that Carrie would be calling us a hundred all of us a hundred times mm-hmm. a day going um, going nuts. But um, oh, Carrie! One of the things you mentioned is that there are restaurants that were due to be opening. One of the things we promised at the beginning of this interview, and you've been incredibly generous with your time. I know we're we're looking towards the end of our time together, but one of the things we did promise is we were going to look into your crystal ball and ask, where do you think we're going to go next? Well, um, you know, I think some of this is going to be, you know, the survival of the fittest. I think that, you know, restaurants that were well-funded, well-organized, um, you know, back to, I, I heard your discussion, Michael, with, with, with Jennifer. Um, I, I think that, um, restaurants that were well positioned pre COVID, um, are the ones that are going to survive. I think the ones that, you know, were, were maybe struggling beforehand and, um, you know, were, going paycheck to, to paycheck and, um, and didn't have the financial capitalization, I think, you know, that's where you're going to see, uh, a lot of, of, of strife and, and a lot of, of turmoil. I think that there's an entire sector of our industry, um, that is not fast casual. I think fast food is, um, uh, Many of you know who know my son Cole um, thinks that culinary nirvana is um, you know, <laughs> one of the seven drive-through lanes at Chick-fil-A. Um, no joke, they they had about fourteen people directing um, traffic, and Cole knows exactly how to go to skirt the line and <laughs> and, and get his curbside order. Um, but some of the fast food is 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 definitely thriving, but. I, I wonder what the place um, for some of the fast casual um, chains out there, um, you know, what their their long term prognosis and, and survival. I don't know how some of these big box uh, kind of homogenized uh, restaurants are, are going to fare moving um, forward, because I think that many people have decided, well, you know, I can take out and and eat home. I can, you know, do a home meal replacement kit. Um, And so at that particular price point of people who may be economically devastated from losing jobs, uh, I I think that you're going to see issue. Um, I, I think that fine dining at the very high end, um, you know, smaller, maybe they were already more socially distanced with their tables, uh, maybe more special occasion will be okay. But I, I definitely worry about, you know, the, the middle sector. And, and it, let me ask real quick, Jennifer, it goes beyond just the rent, right? Like Elizabeth, cause that's where 
you know, you, we talk to a lot of people and like, well, the rent is so, but it goes beyond the rent and what they're right. Cause they yeah, could always yeah. work out a deal with their landlord. It goes, it, cause there's more restrictions now and they, they'll probably have to have more staff to be able to support what they're doing just to be compliant. Well, but first and foremost, to your point, Michael, is you got to have the customer demand. And so if you have a segment of the population, um, look here in Las Vegas. I mean, you know, when casinos open in a couple of weeks, we know that A, not all the casinos are going to reopen. And and some of these, you know, even, you know, Wynn and the Venetian, they're not opening six or 7,000 rooms. You know, they're opening a fraction of that. And so there's only proportionate number of people right. that are going back to, to work. And so um, there's going to be a huge percentage of our population around the country um, that's going to be economically devastated. And that those are people that eat um, out as, as, as well. And so if you don't have the customers, forget the rent, um, forget how many seats you have. Um, and I think also a lot of people have been forced to, to cook. I think, you know, one of the interesting things is I've talked to friends who have um, sandwich chains and things like that. And they've been, you know, impacted because I think people are home and it's like, okay, I'll make a sandwich. Maybe I'll order out once or twice a, a week. I think people have gotten used to cooking, preparing things. And so I, I think all of that is going to eat away um, at restaurant patronage. Is this going to make or force restaurants to get more efficient? I mean, some restaurants, absolutely. But um, I I would say when you have Sven Mead and Jason Lappin and Kim Cantonwalla behind you, you know, uh, at Buddy V's, Brian Forgione and Chris Chandler, I mean, these are pretty efficient operations. Um, I don't know. Is 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 the new model emerging yet? Has there or was there a conversation about a new overall dining business model um, anywhere in the uh, universe of, of food, Michael? Elizabeth, I'll, I'll throw this to both of you. Was there something happening about, you know, the future of the restaurant business that might get sped up a little in its development and adoption? Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, I think, you know, we were starting to see the emergence of the ghost kitchens. I think that's going to be in hyperdrive. I think you're going to have the converse with the food halls, which were, you know, places for masses of people to, you know, to gather. And I think they're going to take a step back. And I think that, you know, things like ghost kitchen and, and a lot of these, um, you know, delivery services are are going to accelerate. You think, you're gonna find, you think you're going to find more price fixed meals, Elizabeth? So less ordering off the menu and more ordering. All right, we have a 15 course tasting menu. This is what it is. This is what it costs. And this is how many seats we can fill. You think restaurants well, could go that route? Well, I can tell you, um, you know, during the crisis, um, a huge proportion of our meals um, switched to the family style meals, the you know, the meatloaf dinner, the the fried chicken dinner, um, you know, rather than trying to put, you know, four or five a la carte meals. First of all, it was it was priced, um, uh, you know, kind of more approachably. Um, and I think, you know, kind of more how a family would traditionally eat rather than <laughs> four different appetizers, four different main right. dishes. Um, so 
you know, we'll, we'll see what the long-term lasting effects of, of that are. But, you know, from an efficiency standpoint, we can charge less because it's packaged in one container. Uh, it's cooked at one time. Um, but it's, um, it's a brave new world out there. So you've got to be, as a restaurateur, you've got to be ready to pivot on a dime. Um, as Michael knows, our, our governor gave us 48 hours to, to reopen. And, um, you know, frankly, I said, thank you, uh, for the opportunity. Uh, but we're going to take our time. We're going to do this right. We're going to make sure that we have every precaution procedure training in place to make sure that when we do reopen, we do it with the utmost confidence for our own honey salt team. Um, as as well as for you know every guest that that enters and so taking your time you know watching we created a Facebook community called Save Our um, Local Restaurant Community for Las Vegas it's a place to gather best practices for restaurateurs to share information um, I think it's just it's it's critical at this time there's a lot of great leaders. Um, uh, Gary Lamore, Jolene Menina, uh, Brian Howard, Mark Marone. Um, there's a lot of terrific people. And, you know, we had just started this women's hospitality initiative and, you know, all of these phenomenal women leaders in, in our community. And so, you know, we're finally getting a moment to breathe and we're going to, you know, kind of gather what everybody has been doing, best practices. Um, Mary Sue Milliken and Susan Feniger, who are a major, even though they're based in LA, they're a major part of our, our, our community. Um, and, uh, and just talk about best practices of what, what people have been doing. You know, hotels like the Wynn and the Venetian have just been leaders in, in our community in terms of protecting their employees, paying their employees, as well as hiring leading experts around the country to develop reopening packages and safety procedures that they've shared um, you know, with the community, the National Restaurant Association, as you mentioned, the IRC, the Business Interruption Group, led by Thomas Keller and Danielle Ballou. Um, our community just, you know, um, you know, continues to shine. And, you know, what you guys are, are, are doing um, with your platform here is, is incredible because it's, our voices need to be heard, our ideas need to be shared, um, we are the hospitality community. And so it's all about working together. Um, and I think, Jennifer, you brought this point up in the beginning. It's like every state reopens and we're just reinventing, you know, where are best practices, you know, coming from national organizations, not some ideas coming from this health, you know, county or, or, or this group. Um, and uh, it's, it's frustrating in the least. Well, Elizabeth, I mean, let's point out the fact that you sit on the board for the Swiss Hotel School, for the CIA, you're involved with the community and sit on boards at Cornell University's Hospitality. We've got brilliant people all over the world thinking about this, and it just speaks to the scope and severity of the situation that we're in, that there is no one short list of like, try doing this. Just do this and everything will be okay. Well, um, but, but, in defense of, but in defense of that, um, you know, we've, we've done some work with Catherine Miller. The James Beard Foundation has just been an incredible leader um, in this whole 
um, situation. And they've just put together, it was nice to reconnect with Corby Kummer. They've just put together um, a whole booklet on, on, on best practices. Uh, so, you know, there, there are a lot of, of people, but, you know, to your point, there's not one, you know, support for, for a national voice. Um, but I know the national restaurant association has been doing great work, but, you know, you, you have to have, you know, an extra 20 hours in the day to, you know, to, to read all of these things, plus try and, you know, save your business. And, yeah, and, and, and not to interrupt you, but I'm not saying we should have one short list. What I'm saying is that the scope and severity of this situation is such that you can't have a short list, that everybody has to do what is taking place at the Beard Foundation and with other organizations where smart people are getting together and saying, let's solve as many of these things as we can. I'm just trying to point out there are a lot of issues to resolve, both big and small, in front of the house, in back of the house, uh, in communication. If you look at the fact that every operator has all of these myriad organizations and connections with their suppliers and their vendors and their customers, if you just look at the, the, the ripples and that you have to have solutions at every point, it's just, it's pretty overwhelming. How do you deal with the fact that it's overwhelming? Luckily, I have an amazing team, so mm -hmm. I have um, a lot of um, support because there are only so many hours of the day, and those croissants have to be made because I'm going to get a call from <laughs> saying, I'm going to kill you, Blau, <laughs> and send one of those over. But, you know, you got to have balance. I mean, if I don't get out into the mountains and, you know, and hike a couple days, you know, this could be overwhelming. I mean, no matter how strong you are, I mean... When you look at, you know, what is going on and you, you know, you realize that the entire strip and every casino property in Las Vegas is shut down and there are hundreds of thousands of people out of work, panicked, having no idea of, you know, when they're coming back. Um, it's just, it's, it's devastating. And so, um, you know, you, you got to take care of your, you know, it's like the, um, flight attendant says you got to take the, you know, the oxygen mask and, and, and take care of yourself first. Um, and, and then, you know, hopefully you have, you know, an incredibly supportive team around you, um, that can, can, you know, divide and, and, and conquer. And, um, that's why I have a, a great partnership with my, my husband and, um, you know, a lot of great friends in the industry and a lot of organizations that are, are really trying to put, you know, forward best practices. We'll reach out to the Beard Foundation. Was there a name on the report that they just generated about reopening uh, points? Um, I'm sure Catherine Miller, um, yeah. the vice president of Impact, can um, can uh, can give that, but I'm not sure if they've released it. Um, we were assisting with some input and, um, and editing from the operations, um, standpoint, we were honored to be asked to be involved, but, um, we'll keep our eyes open for that. That's the yeah. kind of thing that I think everybody's going to be hungry for. Yes, without a doubt. And, you know, in so many of these, um, webinars that I've, um, participated in, um, the, um, the, the Las Vegas Chamber of Commerce just had one. It was um, Riley Langison and um, Scott Gerber and I um, last week. And, you know, 
you know, these webinars are having four or 500 people um, listening in because people just, you know, they, they want, they're hungry for information. Um, and as I said, you know, we all want to, um, to share, we're doing, um, uh, one with, uh, open table has also come out and emerged as a, as a terrific leader, um, in the industry, both working with their restaurant clients, um, you know, to, to try and, uh, you know, work out financial arrangements with us, um, but also to be, you know, thought leaders in, in terms of best practices. So, um, it's wonderful to see, um, that, that support from, from our vendors. And the thing that's so cool, Elizabeth, is that there are really clever and bright people who are passionate and dedicated coming up with really inventive ideas all over the country. And they can be useful in New York and Nevada. You know, that's the great news about this. But that the fact that Nevada and the city of Las Vegas in particular in your community, Michael and Elizabeth, there are very few places, if any, that are like Las Vegas and that the whole community, the whole culture is built around our hospitality industry. And in that, you're in a really unique situation. And from that, I'm going to give you the last word, Elizabeth, about what you want people to to consider about Las Vegas in this moment in time. You know, um, Michael knows this. I, I think that um, that a lot of people, you know, look at our city with our 42 million visitors and, and just think it, uh, you know, as a transitory place for, you know, for people to visit and what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas and it, you know, it's a party town, but um, there's a thriving um, restaurant community here. There are some of the most philanthropic people in the country in this, um, in this community. And, you know, I believe Las Vegas is a roll up your sleeves and, you know, and anyone can, can get it done. Um, it is a community filled with kindness. And, um, you know, I think that during this crisis that has really been exemplified, um, uh, at, at every, at every turn. I mean, everybody is hurting. It doesn't matter, you know, who, who you are, whether you're a big casino or a big liquor supplier, um, everybody is, 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 is feeling this disaster. And, um, and so I couldn't be any more, uh, proud of our community, our, our government, but, you know, really my partners in delivering with dignity, um, put them in, in Julie and, um, and uh, our, our county commissioner and uh, and just so many people that uh, on the public uh, and the private side who have who have funded this and you know have enabled us to get those thirty eight thousand meals and growing um, out to those in the community and so um, you know I I will have felt that I um, I have used my time wisely. Elizabeth Blau, co-founder and president of Blau & Associates, uh, one of the foremost international hospitality industry consulting firms, one of the industry leaders and experts and innovator in her own right, co-author of the Honey Salt Culinary Scrapbook, uh, and our friend in the business. Thank you so much for the wisdom and for sharing your expertise with us today. I'm really grateful for all of this time, generosity, and inspiration. Well, it's nice to see both of your beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> All right, go make go back to the kitchen and bake me something delicious. And put that coffee cake. Before we let you go, we're going to say that, that uh, it's uh, at Honey Salt, uh, and yep. pictures of those croissants that Elizabeth's going back to bake right now will probably end up on Instagram in just a little bit. 
Michael, before we say goodbye today, I, I want you to speak to uh, the fact that things are dynamic and changing so fast and so much. Um, and to maybe get your reaction to some of the comments Elizabeth made. Um, listen, they're not even comments. I mean, this is, this is the most educated person in the industry telling us what it is, right? So this isn't an opinion. This is when you go to someone for advice, like if I go to, and I do all the time, go to Elizabeth for advice, right? She helped me build the magazine to where we're at if it wasn't for her, right? But she knows what she's doing. She's been through every stage of the industry. She's other than just the educational, she's lived it. She's worked it. Her hands are in it. She, um, there's no, there's never been like a snobbery of other restaurant owners. She's always been involved in the group, no matter how, how big her, her position is or how big her, how big and famous her restaurants are. There was always the other people that could always come to her. And so she's helped them and she's seen it. Right. So she knows now what can happen and probably what can they do to save themselves. Right. Cause at this point it's what can we do to save ourselves? Not the just government. any restaurant tour is going to ask this question. How can yeah, but it's also caterer? Let's let's not leave the caterers. Let's not leave the guys with the hot dog stands. I mean, it's everybody, right? I don't even want to just pigeonhole just a restaurant tour. You know, um, how are, how is a guy that happens to have a concession stand? In, like they must have paid millions of dollars for these NFL concession stands in the arenas or the stadiums, right? Right. Well, they, they're banking on that income. What happens now? They already paid the money. Well, so you know. They, our friends, uh, Drew and Tracy Niporin from the Myriad Restaurant Group in New York, operate the Acela Club at um, City Field where the Mets play. Right. And, and they're just, and I know Elizabeth's involved in that business. There's, uh, Honey Salt does the um, Centurion Lounge with American Express at McCarran Airport in Las Vegas. Where food happens yes. is incidental. The where food happens is incidental. That right. the impact on food is everywhere. The airport doesn't insulate you. Uh, no. well, but you thought in the beginning, you would always say, I want my restaurant at first in Maine because it'll always be busy. It'll always be busy. Well, this isn't the case right now, right? So it's going to be creative. It's going to take conversations, uncomfortable conversations, right? Rest, and we were talking about this at my house the other day. You know, my wife was on Cake Boss and decorated cake. I was in the cake business for a long time. And, and, and the key to it is talking to your landlord. What is a landlord going to do? You haven't paid, you can't pay your rent for three months. Is he going to kick you out and then try to release that space to someone who's going to come in and fail anyway? Right? So there has to be a, a happy medium. And it's not, it may not be, don't pay your rent and pay me that same amount later. It may be a little bit less. No one's being greedy. So if everybody can sort of be on the same page, right? Take greed out of this. I know it's hard take greed, take personal feeling, whatever it is, and work right. toward a common goal, I think these places can succeed, right? It's but just, it's... Not, but it's not like my business is going under and every other business on the street is doing okay and I'm the only one that's not doing okay. Every right. business is not doing Right, okay. but let's not forget this. Ego is a very big factor in this industry, period. You and I have met many, 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 many restaurants and chefs that are ego driven. Some succeed, most probably fail because of that ego, right? This is not the time to maintain that because there's no reason to blame. We know what's going on. Go in and talk to people, but be, do it humbly. Be humble. That's all. You're not asking for a favor. You're showing everybody's in the same boat. 
but you need to have the conversation because if you don't, you can't like, it's like going to your mom and dad for money when you need something. If you don't tell them what you need it for and you come to them the last minute, they're going to say no. Right. Don't so get true dad of a teenager. Hey, listen, I, I want to go though. And I don't mean to make a Las Vegas pun here, but in regards to operations, it seems like all bets are off. The things you need to be able to rely on that were the predictable success factors that you'd write into a business plan to make a business get the funding it needed to open up and launch are off. I'll tell you what, though, I've been doing some analyzing, you know, obviously because we have the new book coming out, the Food and Beverage Magazine's Guide to Restaurant Success. But that being said, I'm sitting here going, okay, everything I talked about works for a restaurant, right? What will work for today? What would what can you do? And Elizabeth's right. You need to have the customers in, right? But what can you do to ensure once they come in that you are at your levels, right? You're at your under 27%, whatever it is for food costs. And you're this, that, right? All your levels, right? That's why I brought that up to Elizabeth. Is a tasting menu the way to go? And I think that it is because then you know exactly what you're charging, Right. You, and you know what? Everyone, someone walks in that door. Well, you know define, what they're define tasting menu for everybody. Hold on, I mean, OK, so so a tasting menu would be a certain number of items, five, seven, nine, 12 items in a menu in courses. Right. Here's why I think it could work. You know how much money you're going to bring in from each individual. You already know that because they're pre buying it. Right. They're coming in. You also know what product you need. So in other words, when you have a whole restaurant with with 30, 40 things on a menu, You've got to have all that stuff in stock. Well, if you cut this down to a tasting menu with different courses, you only need that particular ingredient. You don't need other ingredients, right? You don't need to have seven different kinds of ice cream or 15 so different Why wouldn't you just say, here's my menu for today and take a page out of a European? Because you don't know. The table, this is the menu for today. Because you don't know what you're going to make. I think that doing it in courses, you're guaranteed to say, okay, it's $49 a person. It's $79 a person. You know that there's seven. In, and then, then, of course, you have your liquor. and That's an upcharge, right? Or maybe even dessert. Bring that in as an upcharge. But you know from ground zero what you're going to make. Because just because somebody came, comes in and says, hey, I want to sit down at your table, you don't have enough tables, right? You're, 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 you're limited at this point, right? Right. So someone could sit down, not to be rude. They may just want a piece of pie and a coffee. Do you see what I'm saying? So there's $20 where that same seat could have garnered $80, $85, maybe even $120. You see what I'm saying? I mean, it's a little weird way to think about it, but it, but it's business. There's no excuse for business, right? If you you could, and wait a minute, Jen, you could also do a late night dessert tasting menu. There's always to do it, but at least you know how much money you're going to make per person. Uh -huh. I ask you this. In doing your book, and you looked at all the various business models you know, the FERS hometown family buffet model, the the uh, a la carte model, the, you know, family style model. Of all the models that exist historically, and not just in this 1975, last 50 years of uh, food ascension, uh, going back all the way, yeah. all the way. Okay, go what for it. Think, what do you think of all the business models for public food service work best. What do you mean public food service? A restaurant, a public house, a tavern, a diner, an uh, automat. What model works best economically? 
Yeah, like like of all the things that, that have existed in the food world, I would be really interested to everybody who's out in the audience, what do you think was the best model that anyone ever came up? Because you know what? One of the things you're talking about when you talk about your model of um, doing a, a fixed menu, to me, that sounds a little bit like Sunday dim sum at my favorite um, Chinese restaurant. Well, that may, you know what, and and maybe Jennifer. And they come around. Where's, the Do you want and, some? Do you not want some? Yeah, I want that. I'll charge you for it. Maybe that's a great way. I listen. I've got a concept called appetizers. That it's that's the kind of style. It's American, basically dim sum. You do you want a little a little French noodle, French onion soup inside of a little bread bowl? Do you want a what do you want an egg roll made out of steak and cheese? What you know? There's but but these obviously. That way, but you're you're again. This is you're picking up little pieces here and there, right? I'm talking about to save. To when I do anything, it's like let's look at the bigger bucket, right? Where can we get our money? You can do that concept, and you can still have someone get two or three things, and there's ten, fifteen dollars a turn. It doesn't work. However, we got excited about food halls, as Elizabeth pointed out, with places like Italy. Well, hold on. What about I like family style? I agree with her there because you know what you're going to make. You know what you're going to be family style. You come in, you get a pot roast or you get a spaghetti and meatballs and you get, this is what you get with it. Boom, 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 boom. Would you like my accent, by the way? A pot roast or spaghetti like and meatballs. So, uh, but, but what's going to come back that maybe went away? Dare I ask? Well, everything's, everything's going to come back that went away. Is the cafeteria, is the cafeteria yes. a man's? A man. How much, how much fun was that with the old hot chops? Do you ever have a hot chops where you lived? No, it was called. It was Marriott's first ever thing. It's what they started with: hot shops, right? Hot shops, cafeterias, and you would go in and you would get your tray, and there'd be the ladies and the hats and the smocks and whatever aprons, and you'd say, "I have some green beans and a little bit of this." Say, you know, like a cafeteria, and then you would take it and you would go sit down. Yes, that's what's coming back because buffets and 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 serve yourselves they can't come back for a very long time. Listen, what about looking at the places that have been around for 100 years? In Arizona, we've got the El Charo. It's 98 right. years old. It's been uh -huh. around for a long time. It's on the cusp of 100 years. They're doing something, right? There's something about their business model. Maybe we need to look at that. Maybe we need to go to New Orleans and look at Galatoire's. They've been around for 100 What are these Well, it's fine dining, though. I mean... El Charo has different different levels of restaurants with different levels of dining, right? Am I wrong or is that correct? Yes, yes. but I'm going to argue that there's something about the essence of the operation. There are places... It may be the nostalgia. Maybe it's the nostalgia of the I operation. don't think that the, Amer the James Beard Awards each year honors the American regional classics, places that have been doing what they do a really long time. And they're not necessarily fancy places. I think but they also have the clients coming in already. So they already have 100 years of clients coming in. Remember, it takes 3,000 people to make any business, 3,000 customers. So unless you have 3,000 active customers, you're already not making a good business. Listen, have you ever been to Los Angeles? What? Where's that? In California. Is that west of Washington, D.C.? Oh, stop. You in Los yes. Angeles, there are many places, but one of my favorites is a place called Felipe's. And Felipe's is the home of the hot dip sandwich, right? The of French. Of course, dip. I've been there. I've been there hundreds of times. Right. French dips. Right. French but I call it Felipe's. But is it Felipe? I don't well, know. Of course you do. With the sawdust on the floor. 
The sawdust on the floor and the spicy hot mustard. Yep. I love it. I love what it. can we learn from places like that in this time? What are the things we need to go back and revisit and re-explore and reevaluate? Where would you say we should at least? And what is Philippe's doing? Philippe's, you walk in, you walk up to a counter, you get your food, you take it on a tray, and you go and sit down. There's if not a lot you, of touching. If you watch Guy Fieri's show, Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives, if you watch some of the shows on TV about those great classic regional American places that yeah. have been around for a long time, a lot of them are stand in line, get to a counter, order your food. Maybe there's something to all of that. Maybe I, You know what? I'm going to text Guy. Let me text Guy and see if we can get him on our show next week. Because maybe yeah. you're right. Maybe this is the topic to talk about with God. Well, but, but you have to ask the question, what do those people who have survived almost everything else have to teach all of us now in this time about what are those best practices we, we curate together, edit, and take forward with us? Correct. And drive-through seems to be one of them right now. Well, we were together with our friends uh, last week. Uh, from French, and and they were suggesting, based on those models and those images they showed us from Australia, that the ghost kid. I can see how the appeal of the ghost kitchen um, can exist, but if you look at let some me, of the can I talk about the ghost kitchen? We're going to have another show on that, but I'll yeah. tell you this: I don't think it's built for success for the restaurant tour. It's built for the success of the basic landlord with a theme. But if you break down those numbers from Grubhub and all the delivery services they're talking about, yeah, you're get they're getting like only forty percent. If you give a thousand dollars worth of sale, they're getting only less than four hundred. And people are starting to post that now to show how much. They're, and listen, there's nothing wrong with that because it's a business, right. right? I don't know that it's the best business model for the restaurant. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm saying it's not the best business model for the restaurant. Right. But if we're talking about places like Felipe's where you stand in line, you 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 get to the front of the line, you go to a counter, you order your food. And yeah. you know, if you if you don't have that full service, in some ways, isn't Felipe's a an old-fashioned ghost restaurant? Well, no, because you're not delivering it and people are walking up these these ghost kitchens you can't walk into, right? Okay. But Felipe's, Felipe's. Felipe, I mean, I love it. Whenever I go to LA, that's I go there in Canters. Those are, those are my two restaurants. They're in Canters. That's it. And Philippe's is amazing. You get in, you go, you sit on their stools, you kick the sawdust around, and you move on. And it's nostalgic. But I wouldn't take someone there on a on a. Well, maybe I would, but you know, for a, you could say I'm taking you for a steak on a date, and you take her to Philippe's for a steak sandwich, and you dip. That'd be amazing. <laughs> Can I tell you the best French dip sandwich I have ever had? came from what? Tucson, Arizona, from Charo Del Rey, again, from the El Charo family, from uh, Carlotta Flores, Ray Flores and the family. They're using Don Guerra from Barrio Breads, James Beard award-winning uh, nominee for best baker, a, a Barrio bread roll, and they're doing their extraordinary dry-aged prime rib as a sandwich. Beautiful. And, and they're infusing the jus that they dip in with mm -hmm. some chili and See, I, prefer, I like it the way it is kiss of the desert i'm telling you it is sensational can you get it without the kiss of the desert can you get original you don't want it without the kiss of the desert i i do i don't want the kiss i live in the desert i'm tired of the desert i don't want the kiss of the desert no 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 trust me when i tell you when, I'm have, trusting I, you. when have i steered you wrong about food hmm? 
Yeah, exactly. You can't come up with you. I'll give you all your fingers and toes to count on. You can't count a single one. Well, you are the expert. You are the, listen, you're the expert. You're the co-host. You have one of these and I don't. So of course you win. I should tell people that is not for eating. I did not win a James Beer prize for eating. Who cares? You have one. Who cares what it's for? Did you? Is anybody watching uh, Amy Schumer Learns to Cook on Food uh, Network? Yeah, I am watching. I love oh it. Oh my god, I you have it. to watch the show. It's fantastic. Let's go. Uh, let's try to get Amy. Let's try to get Amy's husband on the show. I think that they are doing a great job. I couldn't get Amy. I'm friends with her ex boyfriend, fiance. So I don't know that I should go for Amy, but let's at least get her husband on. <laughs> Listen, he's in Martha's Vineyard guy. We got to love that. Listen, uh, we didn't mean to stay this long and keep you all, uh, but I hope that this has been as much fun for you as it is for us. It raises more questions than we answer, but every day we come out here trying to get to the bottom of at least something that's going to make us realize that we are, in fact, all in this together. If there is anything we can do to serve, we will. That's the nature of who we are in the hospitality industry. We save this space for you. We'd love for you to join us. If you have questions or comments, we'd welcome them. And um, we're going to be doing some more specials. Uh, we've got a series of special reports coming up and uh, we've got some really great shows this week. Um, and tomorrow, Michael, we're going to go to my native New England and we're going to visit with the CEO of Ocean Spray. Oh, and my God. I hope we don't have technical difficulties again. We're not going to have technical difficulties. All right. I'm just hoping we don't. That's Can I just tell you, and I'm going to gush a little bit as a young person. Mm hmm. That the you are. Table, the table was preset with a small liqueur glass. You know, like you were serving a cordial, mm -hmm. a true cordial or a pony glass. Uh-huh. Our table was preset with uh, Ocean Spray Cranberry Juice Cocktail. You're a very, you must have come from a very wealthy family, you. No, it's not about, it's just, it, it wasn't, it wasn't like that. It was about. Ours was preset with plastic cups and water from the sink. <laughs> Well, we know how your table manners are. You were just ready to eat and exuberant. I get Robin. That. Robin Leach taught me everything I knew. Well, I have to say, uh, for all of you, uh, please join us again tomorrow. We're going to have uh, a trip to New England, ocean spray, and a look at whether the model for cooperatives is one that might serve us well moving forward. Are the independent farmers and the big conglomerate going to give rise to more and more cooperatives? That's just one of the many things we're going to explore tomorrow when we look at the Ocean Spray Cooperative. Um, and I will say once again what a privilege it is to get to share this time with you, Michael. You are a, a learned man in the restaurant business. And uh, I love what a mensch you are. And for Thank all you. of I you, love what you mensch get you. home, hug your kids, and count your blessings. Good night. Do 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 do.